Let's pray. Father, in your presence we bow, acknowledging that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You're the God of the universe. And it's into your presence we come, conscious of the fact that you are here, and you are here to bless. Open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things from your holy law. Give us hearts that see. Help us to understand and comprehend. Give us faith to believe. Give us courage to obey. And I pray today that we will never be the same because of this encounter this morning with the living God. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Germaphobe, that's the term that is used to describe someone who is overly conscious about cleanliness, excessive about sanitation. Some of you might remember the TV series Monk. Adrian Monk was a detective in San Francisco and a skilled and brilliant detective. But as he worked the grimy streets of that city, he had to battle with his own germophobia. And so he was constantly washing, and he was the poster boy for someone with OCD, this obsessive compulsive disorder. It's interesting that those with OCD really liked the show because they thought, here's a person with a challenge like I face, yet he overcame it and was successful. He's portrayed as brilliant and smart. And the show did, at times, bring some humor in along with the situation, but OCD is nothing to laugh at. When you think about being excessive about sanitation, at least I think of the name Howard Hughes. Remember that person? Howard Hughes was a billionaire, a business tycoon, a genius. He was an aviator and an inventor. But he had a bad case of germophobia. He'd lock himself up sometimes in places so he wouldn't be defiled by anything else. He, he wore tissue boxes on his feet so as to keep them from being defiled. And the life of Howard Hughes was, I think, effectively depicted in the 2004 movie called The Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio. Did you know that there are religious germaphobes? I call them the Pharisees. And we read about it in Mark chapter 7. Let's go to Mark chapter 7 in our ongoing study of the wonderful gospel of Mark. We've been looking at the life of Jesus, simply Jesus. We want to know about him, his character, his teaching, and we want to trust him and follow him to emulate him. Pastor Doug and Pastor Ben moved the ball forward through the Gospel of Mark as I was gone, and we're picking up now in chapter 7. And I want to highlight a portion of Scripture that Pastor Doug already preached on, the early verses of Mark 7 because we need this context to understand the two stories that we're going to look at today. We read in Mark 7 and verse 1 that the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem noticed that the disciples of Jesus were not washing their hands before they would eat food. 
Their hands were unclean. And that word unclean is used multiple times, especially in the text that we're going to be studying today. So the same theme of being clean or unclean is developed and considered. Verse 3 tells us, 7-3, the Pharisees and all the Jews would not eat unless they gave their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Sounds like germophobia. But it was religious. And these religious ceremonies were built on traditions. Traditions that the elders developed. The Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral law written down, written down at the end of the second century, adds over 600 laws to the Ten Commandments. These were the traditions that you had to follow if you were going to try to keep the original ten. But you can imagine that if you place 600 anything on top of the 10 original, you cover it up. You somehow lose the original meaning. And they began to judge people based on their tradition instead of the original 10 commandments. And so the scripture tells us that they asked Jesus the question, verse 5, how come your disciples don't follow our traditions? How come you're not concerned about cleanliness and you wash with defiled hands? That's not right with God. You can just hear them talking, can't you? And Jesus replied with a rebuke of his own by quoting Isaiah 29. You bunch of hypocrites. This is exactly what Isaiah said. You honor me with your lips. You say nice things about me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. Underline that word heart, because that's the key for the whole text. Your heart is far from me. In vain do you worship me, teaching as true doctrine man's traditional ceremonies. And by doing so, you obscure the truth of God. So you've got people following your rules and not following God's ways. Legalists, which is anyone who says you can get right with God by obeying rules, legalists mix merit and mercy together. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. The way to get clean before God is to obey all of our traditions and rules. Allegedly trying to protect the law of God they fenced it in with so many commandments that obscured the true teaching of Scripture. And Jesus honed in on that. He quotes the fifth commandment. The Bible says, honor your father and your mother, but you say with one of your traditions, ah, let's give what should go to my parents uh, to the temple. We'll call it korban. It's a gift to God. And thereby, following your tradition you clearly disobey the teaching of Scripture which says, honor your parents. Notice verse 13. You nullify God's word. You render it useless. You ignore it. You say it's powerless, unimportant, not authoritative. You nullify the word of God for human tradition. So verse 9 says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to establish your own rules. That, my friend, is what is happening in religion today. Man-made rules covering up the clear teaching of God 
people thinking, thinking they're clean and right before God because they obey man-made rules. And their heart is far from the Lord. With that in mind, we turn to verse 14. So this is Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me. Get this. Every one of you, please understand, nothing outside a man can make him unclean. Same subject. They were talking about ceremonial cleanness, washing hands to make them clean. Jesus picks up on that. Nothing outside of a man can make him unclean or defile him by merely going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus lays down this principle. The universal question is this, how can I be clean? And Jesus lays down the principle. It's not a matter of food. It's not what you eat. It's not what comes from the outside. It's not behavior that follows man-made tradition. None of that works. Get this, Jesus said. Listen to it. Understand it. If you have ears to hear, comprehend. And that was the end of his teaching. Now, verse 17 says, After he had left the crowd, he entered a house. His disciples asked him about the parable. And Jesus said to them, Are you so dull? Don't you see it? Confusion. Confusion reigned in the hearts of the disciples. Have you ever read the Bible and been confused? Have you ever wanted to say, Jesus, would you explain it to me? By the way, that's what the Bible does, is explain the words of God. Sometimes you have to study a little. Sometimes you have to compare Scripture with Scripture. Sometimes you have to pray for understanding. All of those things are important. But God wants you to understand his truth. He's not trying to obscure it, but we're dull. Here's a word that is used five different times in the New Testament, and it means that we are without sense. More, more the idea that we are without understanding because we don't lack much of a passion to comprehend. Are you so dull? Don't you get it? Thick-headed. <laughs> Jesus said it's nothing that enters a man from the outside, middle of verse 18, makes him unclean. Don't you get that? For it doesn't go into his heart. That's the issue. But it goes into his stomach and then out of his body. That's all it does. Now Mark gives us a little commentary and makes this statement. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Wow. Now that's not much of a wow to you. Or to me, but if you were a Jew living in that day, that would be a wow. You see, the disciples had reason to be somewhat confused. What do you mean, food doesn't make me clean or unclean? Isn't there a book in the Old Testament called Leviticus that has a whole list of things I can and can't eat? Right? And aren't there traditions about washing that actually are found in the Scripture that are not just man-made? And did not Daniel, when he went to Babylon, say, no, I will not eat the king's meat? And we call him a hero. Daniel said, I'll not defy myself by eating the king's diet. Give me parsley. <laughs> and that guy's our hero, spiritual hero. Did not Peter, who was very kosher, when he was on the rooftop 
in, uh, in Joppa. And the sheet came down from heaven, and the sheet had all the unclean animals that the Old Testament says you shouldn't eat. And the voice said, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, not me. I'm kosher. I've never put anything unclean into my mouth. And then the voice said, what God calls clean, don't you call unclean. Can you imagine how shocking this statement is? I agree with William Barclay, who said when Jesus made this statement, this is perhaps the most revolutionary thing that was ever said up to that point. All foods are clean. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a new covenant. There's a new way to live. Now, Jesus has no right to say that unless he's God. And he is. But they didn't believe it. So he's putting in a whole new order. It's not that I'm against the old covenant. I'm fulfilling the old covenant. And now that the Messiah is here, there's a new way to live. That, my friend, was shocking. Jesus said all foods are clean. This is my life verse. All foods are good. Now, you and I abstain sometimes from food, and that's okay. We call that fasting. We focus on spiritual things. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, we should practice that occasionally. And then there's also the idea that sometimes for health reasons we don't eat certain things, right? My wife is gluten-free. I pray to the Lord that will never come upon me. <laughs> oh, bless her heart, she... She's amazing as she follows the strict eating order. And there's so many good things she can't have. And I really feel bad for her as I'm eating my chocolate cake that she is gluten-free. The older I get, there are certain things I can't eat that I used to eat. Does that happen to you? You're acknowledging that you're getting older. But then there are certain things you and I don't eat because in eating them, we might offend a Christian brother. Read Romans 14. So just because Jesus said you can eat anything you want doesn't mean you can eat anything you want, but it's not a spiritual issue. I'm not holy by not eating certain things or cleaning my hands in a certain way. Holiness is not in behavior. It's deeper than that. And it was a wow statement when Jesus applied the Scripture. The Bible's so practical. When you read the Scripture and understand what God is saying, do you take the next step and apply it? That's where it really is convicting or life-transforming. And so verse 20, Jesus went on, what comes out of a man is really what makes him unclean. The source of evil is within, verse 21. And then he gives us a list that issues from the heart, for it's from men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed. Did you notice what Jesus is doing in this list? He's going back to the Ten Commandments. Did you notice that? He talks about evil thoughts. Everything comes from these evil thoughts. Sinclair Ferguson says, our heart is a factory of evil thoughts, pumping ideas through the body and animating a life of wickedness to every cell. 
Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Beyond a cure, who can understand it? The heart is the source of evil. And this list goes back to the Ten Commandments. Sexual immorality, that's part of the Seventh Commandment. Thievery, Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. By the way, the Greek word here is where we get our English word kleptomaniac. Six, murder. Seven, adultery. Greed is the Tenth Commandment. Malice is based on the sixth, hatred. Deceit is based on the ninth, false witness. Lewdness, that's the sixth commandment. Envy, the tenth commandment. Slander, the ninth commandment. He takes the the original ten and just shares the application of these things. You say, boy, I'm glad my heart's not like this. My friend, this is a description of your heart and mine. Someone once said that the seed of every sin is in my soul. And I trace that statement back to Robert Murray McShane, who was one of the most saintly pastors that ever lived. He died in his 20s. He ministered in Dundee, Scotland, and when he died, the secular papers said, Christ has been among us. That's how godly he lived. His life was so pure that no one could point to Robert Murray and and point out sin. He was just a tremendous, blameless example of what a Christian should be. And Robert Murray McShane said, the seed of every known sin to man is in my heart. You say, I don't think that's true. If God were to take grace off of your life, you're capable of anything. Ray Steadman put it that way. He said, if you're guilty of one sin, you're capable of all of them. Not only are you guilty of breaking them all, you're capable. You know, that ought to give you and I a little compassion to people that we disagree with. It's very important for us to understand that in light of our present climate, the approval of sexual sin as being normal. Where's our compassion? The seed of every known sin is in my heart. The battle against sin must be fought within. It starts within. But Jesus is saying it's a matter of the heart. Don't you get it? You can clean up the way you live on the outside like someone will whitewash a tomb. But inside, full of corruption, dead men's bones and decaying flesh. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. You look good the way you live. But within, it's not a pretty picture. All these evils, verse 23, come from inside. And that's what makes you unclean. It is the heart. And what you need, you don't need more rules. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. I need a new heart. My friend, you may be a very good citizen. You may live your your life in an exemplary way. Your neighbors might love you because you're such a good neighbor that won't get you into heaven because nothing you do merits God's eternal life. You're a sinner, and so am I, and you need a new heart. That's what Jesus was saying. It's a matter of the heart. The book of Ezekiel Chapter 36, 
God says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give to you a heart of flesh, not sinful flesh, but alive and sensitive. And Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow all the issues of life. The issues of life and your eternity, it's determined in your heart. So you can fake it on the outside and pretend to be a Christian when you're among your friends, but God knows your heart. How about your heart? Is it right with God? That's the thing that counts today. Is it dark by sin, or does Christ dwell within? And will you ask him in today? People often know you as you are outside. Jesus really knows you, for he sees inside. How about your heart? That's what he's saying. It's a matter of the heart. But he doesn't stop there. He says this universal question of how can I be clean before God? There's another important aspect of it. Look at verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. That is a coastal city in modern-day Lebanon. We take our trips to Israel, and we go as far north on the coast to Mount Carmel, where Elijah fought with the prophets of Baal. But if you go about another 30 miles north on the coast, you come to the city of Tyre. It was in the land of Philistia in that particular day, Phoenicia or Syria. It was unclean territory. And that's where Jesus went. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, verse 24, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. You know, Jesus was kind of getting out of Dodge because the Pharisees were dogging his, his tracks and were rebuking him, and he was constantly fighting with them, and Herod thought he was a menace, and even the people in his own hometown treated him shamefully in Nazareth. And many people thought Jesus was just a miracle worker, and often he said, don't tell anyone what I just did because he knew if Everyone kept coming to him just for miracles. He couldn't do the teaching he wanted to teach. And he also needed a break. So he went to the seaside resort of Tyre. Got out of Dodge. And someone found him. Have you ever been on vacation? And there's a knock on your door on your rental house and it's your neighbor? Hey, I heard you were down here. Just wanted to come and spend time with you. And you say, boy, you're the very person I was trying to get, get away from. You wanted break. Jesus wanted to keep his presence a secret. But they found him. It's not because Jesus didn't want to minister. He knew this was going to happen. In fact, he went to Tyre for this very reason. Verse 25. There was a woman. When she heard about Jesus being there, she came. Her little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit. By the way, the Greek word for evil is unclean. Same theme throughout the whole chapter. My little girl has an unclean spirit. How can you make her clean? How can you eliminate the evil from her life? Will you do it? This woman came and fell at the feet of Jesus. The woman was a Greek, verse 26, born in Syrian Phoenicia. And she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. 
Now, Jesus lays down a new principle, and the principle is this. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who you are. The first principle in the first story was being pure is not a matter of what you eat. Now the principle is it's not a matter of who you are. It's not your race. It's not race. You're not, not your ethnicity. Something deeper than that. So he says to the woman in verse 27, First, let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. <laughs> and Jesus appears to be resisting her. This story has caused people a lot of questions. How could Jesus be so unfriendly? How could he be so aloof, so harsh with this woman in great need? By the way, the same story is related in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. And the first response of Jesus, according to Matthew, is... Jesus didn't say a word. He gave her the silent treatment. And because of that, you know how uncomfortable we get when there's a lot of silence in the room? The disciples, Matthew 15, spoke up. And they tried to shoo her away. Get away. You shouldn't talk to Jesus. Don't take his time. You're below his dignity. <laughs> she had a lot of things going against her, didn't she? She was a woman. I'm not speaking now of what I believe. I'm speaking of what they believed then. She was a woman. That was strike number one against her. She was a Canaanite, Matthew says. Do you know who the Canaanites are? They're the people that Joshua told Israel to destroy and eliminate when they took over the land. You know where Syrian Phoenicia is? Tyre is in the land that was allotted to the tribe of Asher, and they didn't subdue it. Here's a woman from a tribe that should have been subdued and eliminated. She's a Canaanite. She's a Greek, Mark says, which simply means she's been Hellenized. She's been influenced by Greek culture and language. That was very worldly and very sophisticated. And she wasn't concerned about a son. That might have drawn some interest. She was concerned about a daughter. I mean, all of this is below the dignity of any well-respected rabbi. The disciples said, don't even bother Jesus with this. And the first response of Jesus was, he didn't say anything. And then when he did speak, it sounded really bad. First let the children eat all they want, and, you know, then... Well, the dogs can have the crumbs. I mean, he doesn't even say that right. It's not right for the bread, the children's bread, to be given to the dogs. Wow. The word dog was an insult. Um, the Greeks used the word dog to refer to an audacious woman, a woman of ill repute. We have a word in the English that I don't want to use because it's not appropriate, but that's exactly what this word was. Dog. And they're not talking about her looks. They're talking about the fact she's a woman. The Greeks use the word dog to refer to any Gentile, and Jesus uses the word dog. How? That's a, that's a racial slur. That's inappropriate. 
Well, what you have to know, at least two things, I think, three things cause this passage to change in our perception. Number one, Jesus uses a term, a different term for dog than is often used. There are two, at least two terms. There's the Greek term dog that means scavenger, and everyone despises the dog running in the street. The scavengers. That's the word that they would use for woman or Gentile. But there's another word for dog that spoke of a household pet, a, a lap dog, a, one that would be almost a companion. And that's the word that Jesus used. Number two, you cannot see nor hear the tone in Jesus' voice or the smile on his lips. And I think it's there. The Bible doesn't say it is, but I think it's there. You know, you can say something one way and then change your, change your tonation and facial expression, say the same words, and they mean something totally different. You're an old man, you might say in derision. Or someone might say with a, affection, you're my old man. Now, I'd never use that term for my dad, but some people do. Same term. And there's a smile and affection the second time when there is contempt and derision the first time. I think Jesus said to this woman, you know, this is what everyone says. The bread first has to go to the Jews. It's not right to give it to you, quote, unquote, dogs. I think there was a smile in his face. There was an invitation in his countenance. The woman understood that because notice how she responds. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs underneath the table eat the children's crumbs. They didn't have napkins in those days, so when you would be eating and soil your hands, you would take a chunk of bread and rub your soiled hands on the bread, and then when the bread was soiled, you'd throw it on the ground or out the window, and the dogs would come and eat the bread. And the woman says, yes, but even the bread, the crumbs go to the dogs. Okay, I'll call myself a dog, but I need your blessing. And I think Jesus broke out in a great smile. That's what I was hoping for. That's what I wanted to see. You know, we think he's putting her off, but he's not. And I want you to know that every time the providence of God seems to be negative, every time you think that heaven is frowning against you, every time you pray and God doesn't answer, or when he does, it seems like the wrong answer, and you say, God is against me. He is not. He's testing your faith. And this woman had faith that wouldn't give up. Her faith overcame every obstacle. Her faith was real. God wants to see if our faith is genuine, and that's why he puts it to the test. He wants us to see whether it's genuine, and that's why difficulties come into your life and mine. That's why we are tried and tested. God wants to grow us and purify us and see if our faith is really genuine, because there's a lot of people who really don't have faith in Christ, although they say they do. By the way, in Matthew's gospel, you know what Jesus says? Woman, your faith is great. The Greek word is mega. In the English, it's mega. <laughs> Big, large faith. It's genuine. It's real. It's the real thing. And notice what he says in Mark. 
He told her, woman, for such a reply like this, you can go. Your daughter's healed. And she went home, and sure enough, her daughter was lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. You see, it's a matter of the heart, and it's a matter of faith. How can I be clean before God? Let me tell you, my friend, it's not by you trying to clean up the outside of your life. It's not by you trying to live such a good life that God will be pleased. In your heart, there is sin, and your heart must be changed. It's a matter of your heart. But if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive your sin, and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll give you a new heart, and if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. It's a matter of the heart. And then that faith will be tested to see if it's genuine. Real faith locks in on Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what this woman did. Her faith is commended, and she's written in Scripture for the generations to follow to declare that real faith in Jesus Christ overcomes all obstacles, and even when it seems like God is against you, you won't quit. You must have Christ. Did not Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness? What's the rest? They shall be filled. Yeah. Did not Mary say in her Magnificat, that the Lord will take the hungry soul and fill with good things? Did not Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit? My heart is wicked. They shall see God. Someone put it this way, the broken in spirit and the hungry in heart are God's favorites. He delights to bless when they come to him in faith. So how about your heart? How about your faith? When Constantius, the father of Constantine, was ruling in Rome, he found when he took control that there were many Christians in positions of authority throughout the empire, and so he decreed that every Christian must renounce Christ or lose their job. The day came when the decision had to be made and most of the Christians said, we cannot give up on Christ. And they left their job. But some cringed. I can't lose my job. I'll die. I won't be able to provide for my family. I'll give up Christ to keep my job. After all the decisions were made, Constantius said, okay, all of you Christians who would not give up on Christ... I give you your jobs back. And all of you who gave up on Christ to keep your jobs, you're fired. <laughs> and everyone was shocked. And he said this, I'm convinced that if you will not be loyal to the Savior, you will not be loyal to me. And I want people working in my kingdom with character. And so God is testing our faith. How real is yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these two stories are encouraging and convicting. Lord, they reveal to us our great need. They reveal to us how wrong human beings can be in thinking that they can merit salvation from you. 
Lord, it's not about our food, it's not where we come from, but it's an honest heart that believes totally in Jesus Christ. Help us to see today that our only hope for being cleansed is to be saved by the blood of Christ and by faith receiving the salvation that is offered in Christ. Burn those truths into our soul today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.